All right, how's everyone doing? Once again, welcome all to Wheaton Bible Church, and today we continue um, in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And, and we're going to talk about a topic, and let's say we're going to talk about a sin that tends to be undermined, but that is so dangerous that it's one of the sins that literally sent Jesus to the cross. And verse 18 calls this sin the sin of self-interest. This was what Pilate noticed. He noticed that the religious leaders struggled with self-interest. And the reason why I put the word envy next to the word self-interest there is because in the original, the the phrase self-interest can be translated as envy. That's why if you have an ESV Bible, that is the way they translate that word. But I also think that that there is a valid reason why the NIV, the version that we're using as of right now, um, uses the word self-interest because I really believe that the root of envy is always self-interest. See, envy by definition means that you want to have what you don't have to the point that you can potentially resent those who have what you want, making it impossible for you to rejoice with the people that have what you want. Did you get that? I'll say it again. Envy, by definition, is to want what you don't have to the point that you can potentially resent those who have what you want, making it impossible for you to rejoice with them because they have what you don't have or you want. Tracking with me? The question is, why is it that we do that? Because I believe that many of us, including the preacher, still struggles with that. And I think that the answer is because in our hearts, we still struggle with self-interest. The root of envy is always self-interest. And I think that this text talks about that really clear. And actually, the text is going to show us that everyone here struggles with self-interest. So these are my three points for today. We're going to talk about self-interest and Pilate, self-interest and the religious leaders, and self-interest and Jesus. So just to make you uncomfortable, uncomfortable, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and say, we need to hear this. Go ahead. Let's go with point number one. Self-interest and Pilate. Pilate is an interesting case study because if you read the text too quickly, it will be easy for us to miss um, that Pilate is just as responsible and sending Jesus to the cross as the religious leaders. If you read it too quickly, you will miss the whole thing. So Jesus is here before the Roman government representative, which it will be Pilate. And verse 11 says this. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, in order for you to understand why that question is so important, you must first remember that the people that took Jesus to this governor were the religious leaders. And the reason why the people were trying to take these people, uh, Jesus, to the religious leaders is because they had accused Jesus of blasphemy and they were trying to find a way to execute Jesus. But because they don't have governmental authority, they cannot execute him. Therefore, they do something Brilliant, if you will. Evil and brilliant at the same time. 
In their head, if we cannot call, kill Jesus, then let's have the government kill him. And the way they did this is they accused them before the government as someone that was an insurrectionist, a rebel, a radical, a revolutionary that was planning to go against the government. Now, they knew that if they could convince Pilate that Jesus was a rebel, Pilate would have no option but to execute Jesus. See, for the religious leaders, for Pilate, and even for Jesus, they all know that Jesus only has two options from a human perspective. Either he's for the government or against the government. I don't know if you have ever heard that before in modern times. Either you are for the government or against the government. And it is with that understanding that we see why is it that Pilate, the first question he asked is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, you got to see it. You got to think about this one for a second. Because if Jesus says, yes, I am the king of the Jews, then Pilate would have to say something similar to this. Wait a minute. Who made you a king? Caesar is the only king, the real king, even over your people. So if Jesus answered yes, he will be in trouble with the government. Agree? But if Jesus says no, then Pilate would have to say, then you're a liar. And why are you getting your people upset? Because they claim that you said that you are a king. And if that's a lie, then you have no credibility. And if that's a lie, then everything else you said must be a lie. And now Jesus is in trouble with his followers. See, from that perspective, you can see that this is a lose-lose situation. He's either going to go against the government or he's going to go against his people. There's no way for Jesus to win this argument. Can you see how evil and brilliant this approach was? Now, we cannot forget that Jesus is God. So he answers the only way God himself would answer to a dumb question. Verse 11. You have said so. <laughs> and that answer is something like, uh, yes and no. See, if I'm Pilate, I will be like, wait, what? Is it yes or is it no? And Jesus would say, exactly. And I would say, what? See, a yes or no answer would get Jesus in trouble. And a yes or no answer would take Jesus to the cross. But Jesus was not going to go to the cross because someone tried to put him into some human category. He would not go to the cross because he answered wrong. He will go to the cross, as you're going to see later on, because he had to. But not because someone had placed them in a, some sort of human category. Like if he's for something and against something, for someone and against someone, God, Jesus, will not allow that. And by the way, church, I, I believe that this is one of the things that we have to remember and we have to preach to ourselves, that we don't get to fit Jesus into any of our human categories. 
Because if you really read the Gospels, you would see that Jesus is way too conservative for the liberals and way too liberal for the conservatives. He will be way too Republican for the Democrats and way too Democrat for the Republicans. Way too traditional for the modern people and way too modern for the traditional people. Jesus does not fit any human category. Even what I just said made me lose some friends. That's not the reason why Jesus will go to the cross. So when Jesus says yes and no, he's basically saying this. Yes, I am a king. But not like Caesar king. He has nothing to worry about. And I am a king, but not like the religious leaders want me to be a king. I am something else, something different. My kingdom is not of this world. I mean, that answer shocked Pilate so and so much. That the word that the text used to express what he felt is amazement. That's what we see in verse 4. But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the government. And every single scholar says that that's a positive thing. He is passively amazed by the way this king is like no other king. Now, after this, I think it's obvious that Pilate realized that The issue was not Jesus. The issue was the religious leaders. It it wasn't that there was something wrong with Jesus. It was that there was something wrong with the religious leaders, with their hearts. And that's why he says in verse 18, For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. He saw it. The problem of the religious leaders was self-interest. So Pilate by now seems seems to be moving in the direction of thinking that Jesus is really not guilty. That he does not deserve to die. And yet the text says that he's probably hesitant or struggling a little bit with this because now God is going to speak to him to make sure that he gets it. So how does God speak to him? Through his wife. Look at what happened in verse 19. His wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man. For what I have suffered, but for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. (laughs) So just in case he missed it the first time. Now he's going to speak to his wife. God is going to speak to his wife. So his wife speaks to him. So he's fully convinced that that Jesus is an innocent man. So the question is, why does God do that? Because when we are stubborn in the first round, he's always going to find somebody to speak to you, to tell you what you already heard, and many times, whether you like it or not, is your spouse. Some Some people call spouses a godly interruption. What is the principle there? Listen to your spouse. So actually, do me a favor. Look at your spouse if he's... The spouse is here with you. It's, you got to listen to me. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. You see how much you hesitated? I could even see the people in the east hesitating on this one. <laughs> I think it is safe to assume that by now, Pilate is fully convinced that Jesus is innocent. He has no doubt in his mind that Jesus is innocent. So he goes to the re- religious leaders in verse 23 
and ask the question, what crime has he committed? I don't see any. And they responded, and, and they did not respond. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. And, and I find that behavior so childish. It's like a little kid that you're trying to correct, and they go, la, 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 la. That's exactly what they're doing. Oh, not even an answer. They go louder, crucify him. No, excuse me, I'll crucify him. So what does Pilate do? Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, there was no progress in the conversation, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd as a symbolism of saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's on you. It's your responsibility. Now, if we stop the narrative there, it looks like Pilate is an innocent man. It almost seems like, man, Pilate did everything to try to, to save Jesus. And some of us will be like, oh, man, Pilate was a good man after all. He tried. See, I told you at the beginning that everyone in this narrative is guilty except Jesus. And there's something that we don't see here that we see in the Gospel of John. See, the only thing we see here is that he washed his hands. It's not on me, it's on you. But if you think about it, you have to know that there's a reason that why is it that he did this? And what John is going to show us is that he chose himself before he chose Jesus. Self-interest. How do I know that? Look at what John chapter 19 verse 20, 15 says. The religious leader said to Pilate, shall I crucify your king? And look at how he responds. Uh, and look at what they say. Um, Pilate asked them, should I crucify your king? And look at how they respond. We have no king but Caesar. The religious leaders responded. And after this, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, that phrase, we have no king but Caesar, tells you how sneaky these people were. This is what they're saying to Pilate, to force him to choose himself before Jesus. This is basically what they're saying to him. If Caesar is our king, and we are the religious people, isn't, he, isn't Caesar supposed to also be your king? How, are, how could you possibly let go another man that claims to be a king if we know that we have a real king, would your king be okay with Jesus being a new king? This is basically what they're saying. Are you willing to sacrifice your position, your title, your reputation, your power, your benefits for the sake of this so-called king? Now, Pilate has to choose. Jesus, or my position, my title, my reputation, and my power. And Pilate purposely goes against his conscience. Goes against what he, know, he knows is true. 
and condemns Jesus. He chose himself above Jesus. Self-interest. Can you see why Pilate was just as responsible to send Jesus to the cross as the religious leaders were? So I have to ask myself the question and ask you this, yourself. The question is, are we, you and I, willing to sacrifice what we know about Jesus in the name of self-interest? Are we, you and I, willing to compromise what we believe about Jesus so we don't lose what we think matters most? That is the self-interest of the religious leaders. What about the self-interest of uh, the, the self-interest of Pilate? What are the self-interest of the religious leaders? Point number two. And I think that the self-interest of the religious leaders look a little different. It is the same sin displayed in a different way, and that's why we use the word envy. And to explain this one, I'm relying a lot in the work of Jerry Bridges in a book he wrote years ago. He already passed away, but it's a great book, and I, go, I quote it here all the time, a book called Respectable Sins. And basically what he did in that book, he went through the list of all the sins that Christians, believers, tend to undermine and put in the category of, oops, I did it again, and not sin. One of those sins is envy. And look at how he defines envy. The painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. In his words, explaining his words is when you feel resentful and you cannot enjoy what somebody else has, which is what I said at the beginning. But look at what he says, and I quote, but we don't just envy people in general. Usually, there are, only, there are two conditions that tempt us to envy. First, we tend to envy those whom we most closely identify. So we envy the people that are like us. And second, we tend to envy in them the areas we value most. So whatever we love the most, that's what we envy. We don't envy everybody. That's what Jerry Bridges says. We lose our happiness and we lose our contentment when we start comparing ourselves to people that are, quote, unquote, like us and that they have the things that we think we should have. Not everybody, but the people that are like you and have the same things that you, quote, unquote, should have. So envy not only creates this resentment, and envy does not allow you to enjoy not only what you have, but what other people have. But Jerry Bridges says, and I found this super interesting, that in our hearts and mind, we start to see other people as rivals. So it's not only that we are bothered by what they have, we start to see them to a certain degree as enemies. Because, he says, and I completely agree with him, we start to see him as equals or as superior to us. You know why that's important? Because he tells you that deep down inside, part of the reason why we have envy, experience envy, and do all these things is because we hate to be equal to others. 
and we hate to feel inferior. And that's why we have this struggle. For the religious leaders, that is so obvious. See, they felt threatened by Jesus because he was another religious leader. The same quote-unquote category. They envied Jesus because he was gaining popularity and they were losing popularity. They see Jesus as a rival because he's getting what, they, what he always wanted. The interesting thing is that Jesus did not look for that. And they hated Jesus because they could not stand the idea that people loved them more, that he had everything they wanted, and as much as they forced it, they could never get it. They hated the idea that Jesus would be superior, and they were inferior. Let me make a parenthesis here, because if envy is the root of self-interest, pride is the root of envy. And I'm borrowing this from C.S. Lewis. He would say, a, pride person, a person that is struggling with pride is someone that is not content with just having things. But the proud always wants to have more than their neighbor. So pride, envy, and self-interest always work together. And here we have a picture of a group of religious leaders that are so intoxicated with themselves that they cannot stand Jesus and they chose a true rebellious murderer at the expense of Jesus. That's why in verse 17, it says that when, they, when the, the crowd gathered, they asked Pilate, uh, Pilate asked, which one of you want me to release to you as a token of appreciation during the festivities? And, they said, and he says, Jesus, which is super interesting. The name Jesus is the son of man. That's the, the definition. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Messiah? They have to choose between two Jesuses. And they choose Barabbas. And because our sins not only affect us, but affect everybody else, look at what happens in verse 20. So the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Can you see why is it that the self-interest of the religious leaders sent Jesus to the cross? Everyone is guilty here. See, the religious leaders, um, in their desire to feel superior, they needed to be recognized, appreciated, and followed. And they could not stand that they did not have what Jesus had. And not only that robbed them of contentment, and not only displayed how ungrateful they were with the things that the Lord had already given them, and not only they couldn't be okay uh, with being who the Lord made them to be, but their envy and self-interest chose to give freedom to a guilty man and condemned an innocent man. Ain't that an awful sin? How many of you guys agree that that's an awful sin? How many of us still struggle with that? Whew, only like five of you, five of you guys. Praise God. How about if I tell you that every now and then I still struggle with that one? 
when I was writing this, I, I preached a sermon like this like five years ago. And for some reason, when I was writing this one, I remembered uh, a story that I shared like five years ago. And it had to be probably like seven years ago. For some reason, I remember it again. And because I just asked you to be honest enough and recognize that you still struggle with this and you couldn't, let me then share that I still struggle with that. Maybe I need Jesus more than what you do. So I have a friend, um, we're still friends today, by the way, uh, that we kind of became ministers at the same time. And we're growing in ministry almost at the same time. And we have two different churches, obviously, but, you know, we're going hand in hand. Um, and our churches at that time looked very similar. Um, and later on, Iglesia del Pueblo, when I was leading Iglesia del Pueblo, uh, started to grow more. And his church never grew much, but Iglesia del Pueblo continued to grow. But I, I don't ever remember feeling superior because my church was bigger. Like, we were partners in ministry, friends, like really friends, right? One day I'm scrolling through uh, social media. I'm starting to think that social media is the devil. No, not true, not true, not true. <laughs> I'm scrolling through uh, social media, and then I see that he is being invited. And by the way, we speak in the same conferences, and we go to the same places, Right? And I noticed that he's been invited to a conference um, that in the past I probably would have been invited to that. And I'm like, oh, that, that's nice. That's, that's cool. I mean, the Lord is using him. You know, a time later, I'm scrolling again, and I find another post to another conference. And he is there again. And I'm like, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> oh, he's speaking there too? Oh, oh that's nice. Then I keep going and I find another post for a different conference. <laughs> and there he is again. And then I say, man, is this guy ever in his church? <laughs> I think he's neglecting his church. And then this thought came to mind. Well, at least I have a bigger church. And the Holy Spirit goes, there it is. You know how awful that is? And this is my friend. And I really don't need anything. And the Lord is using him in the way he wants to use him. And the Lord is using me in the way he wants to use me. And that is the effect of envy because sin makes you dumb. And I'm forgetting that everything I am and everything I have is because of the grace of God. And I'm forgetting that God is sovereign and he knows what to give and when to give or if he gives. And I'm forgetting that God is good. And I'm forgetting that what I have is what I need and what I don't have, I don't need. And my toxic Self-envious heart cannot find contentment for a fragment of time. And the Spirit says, you repent and you repent right now. So let me ask the question again. How many of you guys still struggle with envy? Praise God is more than just five like before. This is the crazy thing. 
This is one of those things that you could be completely blind to and completely ignore and put another label. You could put ambition or desire, so I want to use my gift, whatever it is. But there is no excuse to it. And the religious leaders are so blind to their own sin that look at the crazy thing they say in verse 25. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and are our children. You know how crazy that is? If I'm guilty of anything wrong, may I die and also my children die. Who would say that? Someone that is so blind to their own envy. So the question you have to ask and I have to answer somehow, can we die to our envy and self-interest? Is it possible to conquer the sin of self-interest and envy? And the answer, because we are gospel people, is of course yes. Is it going to be a struggle? For sure. Can we die to it? For sure. How? Point number three, self-interest and Jesus. See, the problem with self-interest, at the end of the day, listen up, church, it's a desire problem. It's when we, we start desiring something that is good. There's nothing wrong with you wanting more, having more. That's not the problem. The problem is when your desire is too intense. When you want more and need more and reach more because your desire is too intense. This is what we call an inordinate desire. When you want something way too much. Something that is started as something good, but you let it develop and now it's something that you must have. It's a desire. To the point that you lose control over them. And the crazy thing about this thing is that you don't have power over your desires. Like if I'm looking through the thing and I look at my friend, I can say, well, I'm not going to feel anything. Well, I don't desire what he wants. I can't do that. That doesn't work. Has that worked for you? You don't have no power or control about your desires. If you have a sinful heart, that's what is going to happen. So how do we fix it? Well, the only way you conquer a desire is by desiring something else more. It's not self-discipline. It's not you trying hard. It's by you finding something that you can desire even more. For us believers, must be Jesus. It is to be content with him. It is to be content with what he did for us at the cross. It is to be content to who we are in Jesus to the point that everything else becomes secondary. It's when we desire him, the cross, and who we are more to the point that everything else becomes secondary. See, we have to do something similar to what Pilate did, but with better understanding. We must be amazed by who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and who we are in him. Did you notice what happened in verse 12 and 14? When he was accused, who gave no answer. And in verse 14, after he continued to be accused, he made no reply, not even to a single charge. So you got to ask the question, how does that help us be amazed with Jesus? Well, you have to ask the question, why is it that he stayed quiet? He had the right to defend himself, Amen. 
He could have done it. Amen? Why is it that he chose to stay quiet? Remember how I told you that if Jesus was going to go to the cross, was not going to be because someone put him in a human category? I told you that Jesus will go to the cross because he had to. Because the only way for us to be saved would be for him to take our place. Not because he was just sent there. He stayed quiet to fulfill a prophecy. Isn't that what I said in chapter 53? That he will be oppressed and afflicted, but he would not open his mouth. That he will be like a lamb taken to, the, to be slaughtered, and he will remain silent. He will not open his mouth. See, Jesus had to stay quiet in order for everyone to know that he was the real Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And not only that, in order for him to fulfill everything else that the prophet Isaiah would say, is the reason why we have verses 28 on. So look at what it says, that he was stripped, and he was put a scarlet robe on him as a way to make fun of him. And they would have to put a, a, a crown of thorns on his head, and they would put a staff in his right hand, and they would nail before him and mock them. And in verse 30, it says that he would, people would spit on him, and they would struck him in his head again and again. So later on, he could be taken to the cross. Why did Jesus endure that? Not because somebody put him there, or not just because someone put him there. Because Jesus chose to stay there. To fulfill the prophecy Isaiah 53 said. That he will be despised and rejected, a man of suffering familiar with pain. That he will be despised and considered of low esteem. The superior treated like the inferior. And why would Jesus need to fulfill the prophecy of his silence and the prophecy of his suffering? So he could be punished by God instead of us. Stricken by God instead of us. Afflicted by God instead of us. So he could be pierced for our transgression, our sin, our envy, our self-interest. So he could be crushed for our iniquities. That should amaze the lights out of you. But there's more. Not only this is God himself taking what we deserve, but also giving us what we have been looking in other places. Because Isaiah 53 says that it is because what he did that we found peace with God and therefore peace with him. By his wounds, we are healed. And because of what he did, we are justified. You know what that means? A completely new identity. Don't need to earn anything, prove anything. God the Father loves you just as much as he loves his son. You don't need to gain anything, prove anything to anybody. Technically, you don't need anything. You have it all. You know how we get amazed with Jesus? By time... And time 
and time again. See what God Almighty did for us in which he went the opposite of what Pilate and the religious leaders did. See, they gave freedom to a condemned man. Did you know that the cross in which Jesus was crucified died belonged to Barabbas? They gave freedom to a condemned man. And they condemned an innocent man. And what does God the Father do? He loves you so much. He wants to forgive you so much. He wants to make you new so much that he condemns his innocent son in the place of us condemned people. If that is not amazing to you, you will never die to your self-interest. You will never die to your envy. And you would always be miserable. Only the gospel has the power to change you. Amen? This is one of the reasons why we celebrate communion, you know? It's because this is the way we continue to preach ourselves who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and who we are in him. See, not only we got to hear it, not only we need to talk about it, not only we need to preach it to ourselves, but we have to see it and we have to taste it. And this is why communion is for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer, I'm going to ask you to take the time for you to examine your hearts before we participate in this. If you are guilty of self-interest, envy, and pride, this is the time to repent. This is the time to ask for forgiveness. This is the time to ask the Lord to amaze us with the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he did for us and who we are in him. And then we participate. And if you're not a believer just yet, I would ask you to please do not participate, at least not yet, until you find Jesus amazing. Let's take a few seconds, sir. I'm going to ask you to please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And the Bible reminds us that the Lord Jesus and the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate.
I'm going to ask you to remove the other side of the cup where you find the, the juice. And the Bible says that in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Lord, we are a struggling people. Many of us have already placed our faith in you. We already know what we have. We already know who we are. And yet, envy, self-interest, and pride continue to be a struggle. Lord, we repented already. But we also know that we not only we need to repent, but we need faith. That we need to believe more, that we, leave, that we need to believe with more intensity, that we need to believe with more conviction who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and who we are in him. To the point that our desire for other things becomes secondary. Lord, I pray that just as these elements enter into our system, may the gospel of Jesus Christ enter into our hearts and stay there until we find Jesus, the cross, and our justification simply amazing. Please make it happen by the power of your spirit. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus and the church says...